Okay, I hope that did the trick. Uh, good morning. It's so good to be here again. Um, I feel like I was just here. It's wonderful to be able to come and, and uh, see you all again. Excited to, excited to bring a word, like Alex said, from 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, I've been here twice with you at Cascades before, once last summer and once a few weeks ago. I've, I've preached from Philippians both times, so today is a bit of a pivot. We're going to be in, in Peter's work today, and I just want to begin our time together with reading the, the teaching text from 1 Peter chapter 3, and then we'll dive in. So if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open to 1 Peter 3, or if you have an app on your phone or whatever. But I'm going to be reading from verse 13. It says this, Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And we'll stop there. I have perhaps never in my life felt more alone and out of place than this one evening in December in the northwest of England in 2009. I lived for a year. I graduated high school in 09, and I went and I moved to England for a year. And I did this, you know, the, the generous reading of it would be I wanted to go and do this one-year Bible school program. The reality is I just wanted to be near English Premier League football and be able to go to games and live the culture. So I'm, I'm living in England for a year. I'm up in the northwest at this Bible school called Cape and Ray. And I'm a big Arsenal fan. So obviously the only, the only honorable team to support. And so I'm this huge Arsenal fan, but Arsenal's from London, which is in the southeast of the country. My school's up in the northwest, closer to cities like Liverpool and Manchester, where a lot of the other big clubs in the league reside. So the closest major city was Liverpool, and where I was living for a year was very much like farmland. So there's a lot of, a lot of gruff farming men occupied this territory of England. And so there was this one, this one night, this fateful night in December, that I went with a group of friends to a nearby pub to watch Arsenal play Liverpool. And I, in all of my infinite wisdom as this scrawny North American 17-year-old, decided that I was going to walk into this pub and watch Arsenal play Liverpool wearing my loud and proud, my Arsenal jersey. And this seemed fine and seemed like a good idea until I got in and the game starts and I look around. And, you know, self-awareness is important. I look around and I realize that this pub is packed, absolutely packed with large, gruff farming Brits, all wearing Liverpool jerseys all drinking multiple beers. So I can't really rely on the outcomes here, 
But I think to myself, like, okay, I've got to be, I've got to be, I'm, I'm already sitting here wearing this jersey, so I'm already out there, but I've got to be respectful, I've got to be wise. Don't be ridiculous, don't be foolish. And so we're watching the game, and, and Arsenal goes down 1-0. And the place goes nuts. I realize I'm the only person in the whole pub seated while the place, everyone's on their feet, you know, clinking glasses together, having a wonderful time. And, and a little bit later, Arsenal scores to make it 1-1, and I'm like, like muted celebrations. The place is dead quiet, and everyone's mad and getting frustrated. I'm, I was able to hold it in. I'm like, yes, come on. But nobody could see. It gets to really late in the game. It's 1-1. And out of nowhere, against the run of play, our right back switches play out to our left winger. He gets the ball on the left wing. And I'm telling you, out of nowhere, he cuts inside, and he fires this shot that goes up off the near post and in, out of the blue. The game's almost over. And, and at this point, like, it surprised me so much. It caught me off guard, and all of my, like, responsible thoughts were gone. And in my, in my euphoria, I, like, jumped to my feet, and I screamed, yes! And I, like, I let it all out. But it was dead quiet in this pub. And after I, like, I let my euphoria out, I'm like celebrating way bigger than I should have been. And, I, and like, kind of, it comes back to me, and I look around, and I realize like, I have more angry glares faced my direction than maybe I've ever had in my life. And again, you're looking around, and you're like, all of these people are bigger than me. All of my friends are like averting their, their gaze. They're like disowning me publicly. And I just remember standing there in that moment in this dead quiet pub, st the only person standing, feeling very alone, very out of place, and just hoping for my own well-being at that point. But I, I, I tell that story because I think that moment in some ways describes a little bit what Peter presents in his, in his letter as this idea that he keeps going back to, this really compelling idea that he presents this vision of being strangers or aliens or foreigners or sojourners or language often used, exiles. That's very much how I felt as this North American kid in that pub that evening, being exiles in a strange land. And Peter's presentation of it is essentially, as we live according to the way of Jesus, it will be as though we're in opposition territory standing out wearing a different colored jersey and cheering for completely different moments in the game than everybody else's. And much like my experience, if it's lived authentically and passionately for Jesus, this will not go unnoticed by the eyes around us. This was, as Peter presented it, the Christian life in a culture of Roman power where Caesar is father and worshiped as an almost godlike figure a time of Roman gods and the pantheon and the like. This is also Christian life in a culture today that we live in, a culture of a variety of things, of hedonism, of individualism, of indulgence and fear and all the rest that we know to be true of our moment. This, this idea that if we live according to the teachings of Jesus in our world, it will often look like standing and cheering when everyone around us is seated maybe despondent or worse, frustrated and upset. Or perhaps more accurately, at times, it will reverse this picture, and it'll often look like sitting and abstaining and, and even maybe mourning while the world around us celebrates and indulges. 
This is the life, as Peter describes it, of exiles. And in exile was very much how I felt in that moment in the pub. And it makes perfect sense, really. It makes perfect sense for Christians in our cultural moment, and in really any, to, to be exiles in their land. We live an, an eternally-minded existence in a presently-minded world. We are playing the long game of obedient discipleship to Jesus, transformation of the deepest parts of us, which is slow for results, by the way. We're playing the long game in this imminent frame of immediate gratification. How could we possibly expect to cheer at the same moments of the game and for the same things? And in the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, we have a beautiful vision of eternal life in the kingdom that shapes everything that we do, everything about our temporal lives on this current plane. So what Peter is saying is it, it should feel that way. You are exiles in a foreign land. It should feel that way. And so in this letter, Peter writes pretty extensively about what it means and looks like to be effective ministers as people living in this exile, in this exilic moment. And today, in the text for today, we learn of a difficult but important lesson. And that's simply that it, it won't be easy. It's not going to be easy. This is what Peter's warning the recipients of the letter. Life in this fallen existence will always accompany suffering. I think we're all too familiar. All the more in exile. And suffering is our topic for this morning. I'm really taking us through a fun topic today, Cascades. But suffering is actually, one could argue, the central theme of the book of First Peter. Proportionately, 1 Peter speaks of suffering more than any other book in the Bible. And it traces all throughout this letter that Peter writes. So before we dig into the lessons from our text specifically this morning, I just want to present that and help us see that suffering is this idea that traces all throughout 1 Peter by reading just a few different texts throughout the book that will help us get this sense. The first one is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And many argue that this is the key verse for the entire book. Peter writes this, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had, suffer, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So many, many contend that is the key verse for the whole book. And then there's our passage for today that I just read, that I won't reread, but it gives you a sense of that in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, just to give a few little glimpses of it, Peter then, as he's approaching concluding his letter, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. This idea of suffering traces all throughout this letter of Peter to the church. And before we dive in and we talk a little bit about suffering thematically in this particular text, let me just pray for us 
especially as we approach such a heavy topic. Let me just pray for us, and then we'll get into it together. Uh, Lord God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Lord, we just thank you that as we gather, as we open your word, you are here with us. That we're not just reading words on a page, but your Holy Spirit brings them to life in our lives. Lord, speak to the deepest places of our hearts today, Lord. And that is the very place where this truth often hits the hardest as we grapple with and navigate suffering and pain and loss. God, I don't know the stories of each person in this room, but I can, I can feel very confident that each person in this room can relate to suffering and pain and loss. Lord, you know better than any of us. You know each of our stories. And Lord, by your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do the twofold work today that you always do of piercing right to the core, piercing to the places in our hearts that maybe we try to hide or maybe we try to suppress. Lord, piercing with your truth right to the core, right to the places we need to hear it. But also at the same time, just bringing grace and comfort as the God of all comfort. Bring comfort to each, each person today, Lord, as we, as we learn from your word. So God, thank you that you're here. I pray that you would teach us and comfort us and bring us to a better and fuller understanding of your incredible grace and love for us today. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I come in knowing that I'm already working from behind this morning. Because, I mean, has anyone ever been excited to listen to a sermon about suffering? I think this is why I led with like a fun story about teenage naivete, you know, at the beginning. So maybe helps keep you with me, lightens the mood a little. But suffering's kind of like a dirty word in our day, right? Like the whole Western progressive vision that so many of us are really enticed by, if we're honest, is built upon the pursuit of avoiding suffering and pain at all costs. Like unless it's pain of like not eating carbs to be skinny or something, we avoid it. We avoid pain. We do our best to create a world in which we feel no pain. We'll take whatever drugs we need to to avoid pain. We try to avoid pain and suffering. We hate it. We think it's an interruption. We don't want it in our lives at all. We want comfort and pleasure. But the trouble is, despite our best efforts, suffering finds us. As a world, we have suffered and grieved much over these last few years. As a global church, we continue to suffer and grieve much. And I don't say this as someone who's figured it out. I'm learning this with you, but I think it's really important that we need to learn as followers of Jesus to suffer and to suffer well. The scriptures make it abundantly clear that we need to learn to suffer because it will find us. No matter how committed we are to a way of life that avoids pain and suffering at all costs, and we are very committed to that, and this begs the question, why? Why do we work with all that we have to avoid pain and suffering? Why does our culture have this as such a main and key tenet of its very existence, avoiding pain and suffering? Now, I know there's an obvious answer of it's not enjoyable, but neither is getting a tattoo, and look how many people are doing that. But Tim Keller, in this book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he writes this really, really interesting. It's going to be a bit of a long quote. I think we have it on the screen. Maybe, maybe not. Either way, I'll read it for you. In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he presents, he presents maybe a reason why 
we, our culture particularly, avoids it so strongly. He writes, other cultures have provided its members with various answers to the question, what is the purpose of human life? Some cultures have said it is to live a good life and so eventually escape the, car the cycle of karma and reincarnation and be liberated into eternal bliss. Some have said it's enlightenment, the recognition of the oneness of all things and the attainment of tranquility. Others have said it's to live a life of virtue, of nobility and honor. There are those who teach that the ultimate purpose in life is to go to heaven, to be with your loved ones and with God forever. Hope you're tracking with me. But get this. He continues. He says, the crucial commonality is this. In every one of these worldviews, suffering can, despite its painfulness, be an important means of actually achieving your purpose in life. It can play a pivotal role in propelling you toward all the most important goals. One could say that in each of these other cultures' grand narratives, what human life is all about, suffering can be an important chapter or part of that story. They kind of make sense of the suffering that we experience. Basically what he's saying is every ma major culture throughout human history, in their cultural grand kind of meta-narrative, suffering was built in as a major purpose to get us to the ultimate goal. But then he goes on and he says this. He says, but modern Western culture is different. In the secular view, this material world is all there is. And so the meaning of life is to have the freedom to choose the life that makes you most happy. However, in that view of things, suffering can have no meaningful part. It's a complete interruption of your life story. It cannot be a meaningful part of the story. In this approach to life, suffering should be avoided at almost any cost or minimized to the greatest degree possible. I hope that makes sense. I hope it's a helpful framework to understand why maybe our Western culture is the way that it is. What Keller is saying is that those of us in this Western culture have been taught through growing up amongst this individualistic, really materialistic ideology that the highest value of human life is individual happiness. What makes you happy? Pursue it. And then whatever makes you happy, we're going to build walls around that and safeguard that experience and existence with all that we've got. We're going to write laws to protect your view of happiness or comfort or personal freedom. And when we go through suffering with this kind of mindset, suffering of any kind is traumatic. We can't handle it. We have no categories for it. We can't make sense of it. In many other cultures, maybe many with great resonance in this room, the meaning of life is not individual happiness. It can be things like honor, moral virtue, enlightenment, the family name, faithfulness to truth. And when you have some of those things as the meaning of life in your cultural narrative, suffering is a way that your meaning of life is attained. If you live in a culture of honor, you have to suffer to get honor, as an example. Built into the very fabric of this worldview is suffering, but not us, not here. Here in our city, if we're honest, it's an interruption. One of our first responses to suffering might be, I don't have time for this. I can't take this right now. This was a major response during the COVID shutdown and restrictions. I don't have time for this. This is interrupting all of my goals and plans, my pursuit of my lifestyle. This gets in the way of my pursuit of happiness. This is the way we respond to suffering. But Peter writes here to a young church 
in its infancy as far as facing the realities that come with following Jesus in their or any culture. And Peter sets out a theology and a worldview of suffering. And it's one we must master if we're to live life well as exiles in a foreign land. Because here's the thing, friends. The purpose of life as we know, if you've, if you've heard the message of Jesus, the purpose of life is not the pursuit of happiness. It's not individual freedom and personal autonomy. We've been sold a lie. Some of us have been told this since we've been children, and it's not true. And I truly do believe that we're starting to feel the cracks of that worldview forming. Maybe more than ever as our world has grappled with COVID, I think we're starting to see the cracks of that worldview forming around us. One of my favorite bands is called Fleet Foxes. And they released an album, this is way back in 2011, called Helplessness Blues. And the opening lyrics of the title track have always popped to my mind as I listen to the song. And they've stuck with me all these years. They write this, the opening lyrics of the song. It says, I was raised up believing I was somehow unique. Like a snowflake distinct among snowflakes. Unique in each way you can see. And now after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me. And there's the crack. There's the crack in the worldview. I was told this. I was told that. My life is about the pursuit of happiness, pleasure-seeking, my own individual life. But you know what? That argument is breaking down as I start to look around at the world. That argument breaks down spectacularly upon meeting with suffering. And you know what? I want to serve something beyond me. Something beyond me. And their response in the song that comes next, their response is, quote, but I don't, I don't know what that will be. I'll get back to you someday soon, you'll see. That's their response. But Peter has a different response. Peter's response is, these, these trials, suffering has come so that the proven genuineness of your faith which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's Peter's response. And there it is. There's the purpose. There's the something beyond me. There's the serving something beyond me. The purpose is the praise and glory and honor of Jesus Christ. We live to the praise and glory and honor of Jesus Christ. And Peter is saying that sometimes the road of suffering is the road before you to attain that. So multiple times in chapter 1, chapter 4, uh, chapter 3, as we've read so far, Peter uses this imagery of fire to represent pain and suffering. But it's not just any fire but he's using specifically this image of fire in reference to like a furnace or a forge or a kiln. And the idea with that is, and this is, I think this is helpful, the idea with that is like when you put something into the forge or the furnace, it is either entirely obliterated or it is improved. It's refined. It either turns paper into ash or it can purify gold, right? It all depends on the object thrust into the fire and the manner in which it's treated. So the question is, what is our response to suffering, and how do we view it? And what do we do when it comes? Do we allow it to essentially obliterate us? 
to consume us and undo any growth and spiritual maturity that God may have worked in our past? Or do we allow it to refine us, to burn off what was excess, and to bring us closer to our purpose, to live to the praise and glory and honor of Jesus? But for this morning, there are three very simple lessons that we're going to learn really quickly about our response to suffering from Peter in this text. There are three things that Peter stresses that we should do as we navigate and endure suffering following Jesus as exiles in a foreign land. And I think that they'll help us see in an even clearer sense what purpose we can draw from our suffering and perhaps help us look at different circumstances through a new, refreshed lens. So how do we respond to seasons of suffering? What purpose can we draw? What is our response to suffering? Well, Peter admonishes, exhorts, encourages, commands the readers of this letter to in their suffering, press on, continue forward, press on in doing good. He says, do good. It's very simple. This is the kind of, this is the kind of complex nuanced analysis you came here for. Do good. It's very simple. And it seems overly simplistic, but Peter starts out our text with this hypothetical question that almost seems ironic in verse 13, if you notice that. He says in verse 13, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? I don't know about you, but it almost feels naive. Like, well, Peter, a lot of people, actually. Like, a lot of people. Like maybe even those people that will later put you to death by crucifixion. Maybe those people. Like it, it seems like, okay, well actually a lot of people. So what's next? He follows it in verse 14. He says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Which is a quote from Isaiah chapter 8. Okay, so, so maybe people will harm you less if you're committed to doing good. But Peter acknowledges that no matter how much good you pursue, suffering is a reality that you're going to have to learn to navigate. Not only circumstance, but even people will still harm you, even if you're committed to trying to do good. So what is his response to that? It's still do good. Continue on. Press on. Keep looking. He wants us to speak truth in verse 15, but look at the caveat. Verse 16, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Basically, it's going to happen either way. I know that doing good will not prevent suffering, but persist in it. Keep going because it matters. It reminds me of a well-known text from Paul in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Paul says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Peter's almost borrowing that kind of language. He's saying, don't give up. Persist in it. Keep going. Do good. And I used to wonder what he meant specifically by growing weary of doing good. But in light of this teaching from Peter, you realize that that doing good can almost become wearisome when it's met with harm and suffering. Like when doing good and you, persisting in doing good doesn't seem to bring the rewards that it deserves. When doing good doesn't prevent pain, but maybe 
maybe even brings it. This is certainly true of life in exile. Doing good can become very wearisome when this is how it's met. And Peter says, don't grow weary of doing good. Paul says, don't grow weary of doing good, for it's better to suffer for doing good than to suffer anyway for doing evil. Now, a quick word on the good that this is referring to. It's really interesting. Verse 14, for a follower of Jesus in Peter's moment, would have represented a really clear reference to the well-known teachings of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Specifically, the Beatitudes that begin his sermon in Matthew chapter 5. See, the Greek word used here for blessed is makarios, the same word used by Jesus in each of the Beatitudes. So as soon as this word is used, it triggers that connection immediately. This verse also carries basically the exact same language as one of the specific Beatitudes of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's almost the exact same language. Peter's drawing a clear line to the Beatitudes of Jesus in his exhortation to do good. And then in verse 15, Peter tells us that some of the good is speaking truth with gentleness and respect. And this word for gentleness is the same root word in the Greek for meekness, another attribute of those blessed by Jesus in his Beatitudes. All this to say, Peter is drawing clearly these references, he's drawing his readers to this section of teaching from Jesus as he directs us to do good, which gives us something of a rubric for some of what that means as we navigate seasons of suffering. So if he's directing his readers to the Beatitudes, let's look at those really quickly. In Matthew chapter 5, we don't have time to do a deep dive that's thorough on all of these this morning, but allow me to simply read through them for us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, and Peter's drawing attention to this passage. And Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So basically, doing good as Peter is admonishing the readers to do through pain and suffering. Doing good refers to being poor in spirit the humble, the self-sacrificing, the downwardly mobile, those who mourn, who allow themselves to grieve, to take refuge in God in suffering, not simply avoiding it or pretending that it's not significant. The meek, the gentle, the gracious, the secure enough in themselves to be people of peace in spite of circumstances. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, people driven passionately to do good, to be more and more like Jesus. The merciful, 
those people not out for revenge or for people to get what they deserve, but people who show the love of Jesus through grace and mercy with their words and actions. The pure in heart, people who give the life of the mind over to God to allow him to shape their hearts and minds to see and yearn for him in the things he's doing in our world. The peacemakers, people willing to pursue conversations, even difficult ones, in order to pursue harmony and unity. People steeped in the grace and love of the Father. And then lastly, all those people who are persecuted for all of this stuff, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Peter says, continue to do good. Don't grow weary of doing all of these things, for it's far better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And that's so important. And then secondly, Peter gives another reason why doing good in the midst of suffering is such an important reminder. And the second response to suffering that Peter challenges us with is proclaim Christ. Again, it's simple. It's very simple. But it's proclaim Christ. And it's simple because suffering actually brings about unique opportunities for this very thing. And this, of course, is where he takes us in verse 15. He says in verse 15, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I don't know if you ever heard this done before, but this verse is taken on its own and used for all kinds of things. Usually it's used, the most common way I've heard it used, is used to push the cause of classical apologetics. So like using philosophical and scientific argumentation to defend the Christian faith to an unbelieving world. And in fact, this is the very word, that defense word in the text, is the very word that apologetics gets its name from. It's the Greek word apologia. And this is undoubtedly an important pursuit, so I'm not bashing that at all. It's important to be able to assert the reasonableness of faith in a world of unbelief. But what I think is so often missing in that citation is the context around the verse. And the context around that verse isn't necessarily going to college campuses to set up a debate on the existence of God vis-a-vis Darwinian evolution or anything like that. And it's not to say that can't spur that on. But as we've seen this morning, the context is actually this is a people deep in suffering. This is a people being persecuted as exiles in a foreign land grappling with the purpose for all of this suffering. And they're being called to do good, to pursue righteousness, to live with hope despite their circumstances. And people will take notice. Peter's saying people will take notice. Hope and righteousness in the midst of suffering, much like my celebrations in that pub that night, will draw attention and eyes from people who are enduring suffering without hope. Hope and righteousness in the midst of suffering will draw eyes and attention from people who endure suffering without hope. And when it draws their eyes and it draws their attention, Peter's saying it provides opportunity to share the reason for that hope that you have in the midst of these hard moments. It presents an opportunity to share that eternal perspective we talked about earlier. To share the kingdom of God brought to bear on earth in Jesus Christ, which gives hope for eternity regardless of what our present circumstances might be. Because this God created you and he loves you, it presents an opportunity to share the hope 
that is in us. This is the gospel. This is the reason for the hope that we have in spite of pain and suffering. See, the context of the passage reveals that it's actually far more a continuation on the subject of doing good and the opportunities for the gospel that living as light in darkness will bring. And that's Peter's challenge. Share the good news. But these opportunities to share the good news presuppose that first challenge, doing good. Because as we do good, people will take notice and opportunity will arise. So it presupposes that first thing. So I leave this point just asking, what does it look like to live as beatitude people in these times? What does it look like to live as beatitude people in our city? If we keep that text from Matthew chapter 5 in front of us, and we study daily, what does it look like to be a person who is described and defined by these characteristics? What does it look like to do that in our city, to do that in my spheres of influence, to do that in my workplace? And as I do that, and opportunities come, because they will, eyes will be focused on us. People will see the hope that we endure suffering with. What does it look like to share the hope that I have? Suffering brings all this about. And thirdly, and this is where we finish, thirdly, Peter says, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Verse 18, this is how he finishes this, this section. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Look to Jesus. That's it, friends. That's the ultimate purpose for suffering. We talked about purpose in it. That's the ultimate purpose for suffering. As we already went over, our purpose in life is to live to the praise and glory and honor of Jesus Christ. And in verse 17, Paul has, uh, Peter has just said, it does us no good to suffer in sin or because of sin. That's nothing. That is nothing. But as we suffer because of righteousness, as we suffer for doing good, as we suffer in the way of Jesus, that is not nothing. As we suffer for doing good, as we suffer for righteousness' sake, as we suffer in the way of Jesus, we share in Christ's suffering. We share in the suffering of Jesus. Jesus called us in Mark chapter 8 to take up our cross daily and follow him. It's a famous calling of Jesus. But this taking up of our cross implied that doing good, being people of the Beatitudes way of life, will involve continuing in that through suffering. That's literally what taking up our cross means. And how could it be any different? When the person whom we imitate, the one whom we follow, himself suffered ultimately. Himself suffered the ultimate penalty. See, it's why suffering, often this happens, people enter a crisis of faith because of moments of suffering in their life. And I have so much compassion for that. But suffering ultimately should not cause us to fear or discourage us from faith. It would do those things if we worshiped a different God. It would. But suffering in the way of Jesus should be a constant reminder of the suffering that our God himself went through on our behalf. It should be a constant reminder of the example that he set, the God that we serve and follow. Suffering is not strange or foreign to the way of Jesus. 
It's a reminder that as we suffer because of righteousness, we actually bear his image to this world as we bear our cross in his name. Suffering is the very thing that brought us to God. The suffering of our Lord Jesus made possible that we might be called sons and daughters of the King. The suffering of our God made the way for us to live as exiles with an eternal perspective, with promises assured for eternity. And as we share in his suffering, we participate in the work that he's doing in our world. Suffering ultimately shouldn't be this discouragement of faith. It should be a reminder of the God that we serve and follow. It's a redemptive work of bringing about a beatitude people, a people whose hope in the midst of pain and pandemic provoke eyes and ears, a people who take the opportunity to share the good news of suffering, the suffering of our Lord Jesus, when it's presented. So friends, I'll wrap with this. To go back to that story about that night I was in the pub. It's really fascinating. The rest of the game went on, the game finished. Arsenal won, by the way, so good guys won. We won 2-1, that ended up being the game-winning goal. The rest of the game, I was very sheepish. I don't know what's gonna happen after the final whistle when everyone kind of breaks out and everyone's upset because they're all Liverpool fans and they just got beat. We wrap up and, and the game ends and I'm kind of sheepishly like navigating what to do next. And a couple of the guys, these big gruff men, they come over to me, they like a few beers in, they come over to me. And I'm kind of like shaking. I'm like, oh no, what am, I, what am I about to experience? And they come over to me and honestly, they start to ask me about, you know, as a North American, how I became so passionate about Arsenal Football Club, this soccer team in the southeast of London. And they started to open up kind of my story with it. I started to share my story of how I became a fan, all this stuff. It led to them asking why I was in England in the first place, and I shared about being at Bible school, wanting to learn more about the scriptures and more about Jesus because my life had been so impacted by him. And all of a sudden, we're talking about this stuff, and honestly, it was just a reminder, and I only share that to finish the story, a reminder of kind of, in a way, a kind of ridiculous example of what the eyes and ears of people watching us stand out cheering and celebrating or at least being hopeful in the midst of really unique and difficult circumstances can actually br bring and lead to. As I, sh as I got to share with these men about why I was there in the first place, that only came about because of this moment of feeling very much in exile, standing out and being alone and out of place and having those eyes turned on me. And my question is, and the only reason I even share that is, what if being beatitude people being people of faith and hope and love in the midst of painful seasons in life was actually the strongest witness and opportunity for the gospel that we ever have. Because, and the, and the reason for that is because people everywhere are experiencing and living with and navigating pain and suffering all around us. And most people that we see around us in our city are doing that without the hope that we have. People everywhere are experiencing pain and suffering, and they're looking for hope and answers within it. And to see people, to see beatitude people living in the midst of all of that stuff with hope, with a different posture, with beatitude virtues exuding from us, that draws eyes, that presents opportunities. What a hope we can present to the world and give glory and honor to the person 
of our, of our suffering servant, our Savior. The last two years, and I won't get into it, but the last two years, my family has endured a, a lot of pretty major pain. Our family's kind of broken apart. It's been a really difficult and painful couple of years. Without getting into it, I'll just share from personal experience that being vulnerable and honest and open in the midst of pain and suffering like it has presented far more gospel opportunities and conversations than I've ever experienced before that. It's proof of concept. I've experienced it and seen it in these last couple of years. And the reminder is, friends, it's not just, hey, go out, grin and bear it, suck it up, bear the suffering, because you should. You should do good. It's not just that. It's our God who has suffered the ultimate penalty on our behalf, calling us to share with him in his suffering for the sake of the world. It's him calling us to share with him in his suffering so that he might, like a furnace, like a kiln, refine us, purify us, make us more like him. And that is the ultimate goal. So in our suffering, we share in Christ's suffering. And with that, I just want to pray, and it's going to lead us into our time of communion, which is really the perfect way to reflect on and celebrate and remember the sufferings of Jesus for us. Let me just pray for us, and then we'll move into that. Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you first and foremost that we don't endure suffering alone, that as we navigate the difficult moments and seasons and circumstances in life, as we experience pain, we're not left to endure it on our own. We're not left to endure it without a story and a truth that makes sense of it. Lord, thank you that, that we in this room know the truth, that we know as we endure pain and suffering the reality that it's not for nothing. The reality that we're following in the footsteps, we're following the example of our God who endured such suffering that we might be united with you. God, thank you for that good news. And Lord, I just pray for each of us in this room. Again, I don't know where everyone's at, but Lord, for the, for the people in this room in, in moments of life, in seasons of life, of real pain, of navigating difficult seasons. God, I just pray that they would keep their eyes fixed on you. And that by your Holy Spirit, you would bring comfort and strength and hope. Hope in the midst of trying circumstances. Hope in the midst of pain. Hope in the midst of loss, whatever it might look like, Lord. I pray that you would give, in a way that surpasses understanding, peace and hope and love in the midst of these painful situations. Lord, because we worship a God who says, yeah, in this world, with the way that things are, you will have trouble. And as Peter said, whether we do good or we do evil, there will be difficult times. We will have trouble. But we have the hope and good news of worshiping the God who also says, but take heart. I've overcome the world. 
take heart. You are in me. I am in you. You are with me, and you are following my example. And my example of suffering led to a resurrection that brought the good news of overcoming this world. The good news that we get to live eternally minded with eternal perspective. Empowered and comforted and carried along by the God who did not want us to be far from him, but wanted us to be one with him. God, thank you for that good news. And I just pray that as we navigate being your followers, Jesus, in a world that thinks very differently, that, in, that avoids pain and suffering, that's confused by it, searching for a reason for it. Lord, may we be people that you form and mold and refine into a people who suffer and endure it, hopefully and well, that we might be able to share the hope that we have with those around us. By your strength, Lord, may we be light in darkness. Come Holy Spirit and do this in our time. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So like I said, this moves us.